Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. ago, I once described Scratching the Surface as a podcast for designers who don't want to be designers anymore. It was kind of a joke, but there was also something true in there. I started this show because I was questioning my own interest in design and trying to find my place in the profession after working for some years as a designer in jobs that never quite felt fulfilling in the way I thought they would. And what I try to do here on this show, I think, is show the range of options available to the designer to find new ways of talking about design that get me and hopefully you interested in it in some new way. With that in mind, I felt an immediate kinship with my guests today, Aaron Pellegrino and Jake Rudin. Aaron and Jake are the founders of Out of Architecture, a career consulting firm and resource network where they help architects find ways to use their skills, their training, their experiences outside of the architectural profession. They've packaged many of these ideas up in a book that is also called Out of Architecture, which is available now. Both Aaron and Jake are trained as architects, but have found their work move in different directions. Aaron runs a design build studio called Matter, and Jake leads teams in computational design, digital technologies, and pattern engineering at Adidas. They use these experiences to help others find ways to reevaluate their careers and expand what architects and designers can do. What I think you'll hear in talking about their work is that this desire to leave design is common, and they are tackling this head on. We talk about why designers get burnt out. We talk about the problems with architecture and design education, and we talk about how their work in career consulting strives to help both architects and designers individually reevaluate their careers, but also helps us rethink what architecture and design can be. If you like this episode and what we do here at Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon supporters get bonus interviews, full transcripts, and an exclusive monthly newsletter, all while helping to keep this show free for everyone all the time. You can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up. Thanks for listening. And here is my conversation with Out of Architecture's Aaron Pellegrino and Jake Rudin. I actually want to start with something that you write at the beginning of your book, Out of Architecture. And we'll talk about what Out of Architecture is more generally in a second. But on the first two pages, I'm going to combine two quotes here. You write um, that a lot of people who you talk to have a deep passion for the art of architecture and a secret desire to leave the profession. And then a little bit later, you say that this juxtaposition of love and despair is more than an interesting paradox. It is the profession. Tell me about that. Why is that juxtaposition such a paradox or, or such a so, so core to the profession? 
Um, I mean, I, I, I think it has something to do with just how we're, we're trained to be infinitely curious about things, which we do, at least in, in school, under the umbrella of, you know, studying architecture. But sometimes that means you are given the brief to design an opera house and you do a really deep dive on musical theory or you do a deep dive on, you know, the quality of sound in space and you become a little bit of a, of a dilettante expert, <laughs> if I can use that as an oxymoron, in order to, you know, achieve the goals of, of that space and that project. And then that project finishes and you move on and maybe the next semester you're designing a, a laboratory or, or, or something else, right? So there's this, um, I think this training that, that forces you to hone being infinitely curious about things and kind of treating that as a, as a series of, of obsessions. And I mean, I like to think of it as like being somewhat professionally ADD, right? But you, <laughs> you, get to, you get to kind of try on all of these different hats, particularly in school, or we see that also with, you know, some of the, the architects or the star architects that get the dream commissions, right? They get to explore and play with all these different aspects of, of life. And I think that to me is, is very much the artistic side of it, right? It's, it goes wherever you go, wherever the project takes you. Um, so I do think it's, it's core to how we're built or how we're designed, or maybe how people find themselves falling into architecture because it's perhaps just how their brain works. On the other side, you have this profession that is waiting to receive these incredibly, you know, well-trained, multiversed individuals, multi-talented, you know, as Aaron said, dilettante expert, and I, I prefer the term expert generalist. But upon <laughs> yeah. arriving, the, um, the majority of us who were trained to be creative problem solvers are set against really technical problems and in a way that is is actually quite unfamiliar to the training that we've gained in school. So we sit down, you know, for our first week, um, you know, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and, and ready to kind of tackle this, this new set of, um, you know, what we're, what are, we're being told our creative challenges. And slowly we realize that, you know, not until maybe 20 years into our career are we actually going to be tackling the same kind of creative challenges. And that's not to say that it's not enjoyable but certainly, you know, hearing that, oh, you're not useful for the first five years of your career after investing five, seven, eight years in your education is not ideal. And beyond that, I think we really find that there is a massive disconnect between what we would consider to be one of the best design educations in the world, which is an architectural degree, and a profession that has quite often shoddy business practices, mm -hmm. uh, a real, you know, take passion for your compensation type of environment, right? Pay for passion. And one that, you know, portends to give people this sort of creative fulfillment that, you know, behind closed doors, most people really aren't receiving. I'm curious about where that disconnect happens. You know, I understand the sort of expectations of being in design school to the reality of working in the profession. Is that, I guess you're already starting to answer this a little bit, that this, some of this is a failure of the industry and the business practices of the industry. Um, 
where where does that sort of fit into the education system? Is there is there a change there that sort of prepares students to go into this profession in different ways, if that makes sense? Well, I think the culture starts in how we're educated um, and who educates us, right? So, you know, it's still a profession that is, uh, you know, rooted in, in the artisan, right? So mm. in school, you're taught by other architects, right? So their culture and their sometimes their bad habits, often their bad habits right. and their good ones get passed down, right? So I think for us in particular, and when I say us, I mean, maybe mine and Jake's generation, it started with a, a cultural sensibility that um, particularly at the school that we were educated. So, you know, we went to Cornell undergrad, which comes with all of the sort of elite and somewhat pretentious connotations that that comes with. But, you know, it was it was made pretty clear to us that if we weren't aiming for going to work at OMA or Herzog or, you know, mm. the, the places that, you know, do capital A architecture, then we weren't um, ambitious enough, right? I, I can't say that that is necessarily the same culture that um, someone who is in school now is is receiving. I don't I don't actually know, but I do think it starts with with the culture um, of educational institutions, and also obviously it looks it looks good to them, right? When they can say that their graduates go and and work at right. these award winning Pritzker Prize winning architects, um, you know, it's a self serving uh, model in that way. The reason I wanted to start with that sort of juxtaposition that you talk about of, of sort of love and despair, this passion for the art of architecture and this, you know, secret desire to leave is because I open up your book. I am not an architect. I, I've talked to a lot of architects, but I'm very much not in that world. And I read those two sentences and felt so seen, <laughs> sort of so immediately seen. It, it really related to my own experience in graphic design. And I think you know, I don't want to speak for for a graphic design profession. Um, I think some of those bad habits are are definitely there. I don't think it's as extreme as in architecture, um, but you know, but but it is definitely there. But I I really relate to people who sort of are open about that uh, that sort of love and despair. And anyone who sort of doesn't have that in the design fields, I'm like a little bit skeptical of in some ways. Like I don't quite trust them. Um, and and I you know I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, but I I see this show in many ways as as like a show for designers who don't want to be designers anymore. It's a way to sort of wrestle with this predicament that we find ourselves in, and mm -hmm. you are sort of doing that also, but in a very different way. And so your book is called Out of Architecture, and this is part of your your larger company called Out of Architecture. Can you tell me sort of what Out of Architecture is? generally first and then i have a series of questions of specific questions sort of around that yeah out of architecture started as a way for aaron and i to grapple with some of the disconnect that we were seeing between our education and the profession which we for a very long time um had intended to call kind of our our sole mm. practice and passion uh, for our for the duration of our careers what it began um, to take the shape of was advising both uh, each other and friends and colleagues on different ways of exploring ideas of architecture uh, through their careers. And that could have been through 
other jobs, through other industries, through other modes or methods of practicing architecture, um, or just finding a better fit uh, for their mm-hmm. own personal uh, careers. It actually, you know, has evolved over the last almost six years at this point um, to become quite a bit more than that. But at its core, we consider Out of Architecture to be a kind of a career resource foundry or a career consulting practice that supports not only architects, um, but designers of all ilk. Um, We've had many landscape architects and interior designers and Mm. urban planners and graphic designers and I think a lawyer or two, Aaron, if I'm oh, not mistaken. Nice. Um, <laughs> lawyer turned designer, yeah. yeah. Um, and so we support uh, those individuals. Uh, we're not recruiters or headhunters in that sense. What we do is we sit down and we help people to tell their story and to make sense of whatever the next chapter is. And that chapter may be a career transition from you know, architect to UX UI design or Mm -hmm. from, you know, uh, BIM manager to an AEC technology company uh, or, you know, any, any number of transitions. I mean, I could list absolutely hundreds here. Um, But rather than doing that, I think I'll emphasize that a big part of this is breaking down that wall that you Mm -hmm. mentioned at the beginning of this uh, podcast, which is, It is very difficult because of the way we are trained, because the way we are taught. I I think this is true for for almost all designers, that you go in and invest your whole self in Mm -hmm. your education and in your profession to a point that that noun, that title becomes a real part of your identity. And architects especially hang their hat or or lack of hat on these titles. Uh, So... When an architect sort of, whether it's burns out or becomes tired or is simply just seeking more or different, it can be almost impossible for them to think of any other term to call themselves. And and whether that's a term that they're just simply plugging into a LinkedIn search is almost irrelevant. It's more the core feeling and the sense that, wow, I am, I'm ready to leave behind a part of myself or, or am I, you know, and, right. and who, who tells me that's okay? You know, is it my parents who have, you know, supported me since I was building with Legos and wanted to become this, you know, design architect and who, you know, helped me build a portfolio and drove me around to all of the, you know, beautiful buildings in the area or sent me off to school or all of these things. Or is it, you know, is it my mentors, all of whom have told me that I'm supposed to go to one of these three letter firms and, you know, live out my days until I become a principal or partner? And, and what does that even mean? Because apparently the principals and partners aren't even compensated that well. Um, and they don't seem to be particularly happy with their design careers. And that spiral, <laughs> that, that spiraling feeling, uh, the, the death trap, that's, yeah. that's what we specialize in. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I have so many questions about that. What can you, I realize probably every client, every sort of career trajectory is different, but what does that sort of look like in practice? Can you talk sort of generally about the types of conversations that you're having with people who come to you and, and you know, want this advice or want this permission even is a little bit of what I'm hearing you saying. Um, how do you sort of navigate that conversation? What, what types of things come up in those conversations? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because to your point, everyone's search is different, but we, we have had people fit maybe into categories or, or different flavors. Everyone, you know, comes to us really through an intro call, which is 30 minutes that they can book. And for a really long time, when Out of Architecture started, Jake and I took these together. So it, it really is always at its core, just a conversation. Hmm. The benefit of having done this now for, uh, you know, almost six years, as Jake says, is that um, there's now some some history and some podcasts out about what we do and the process. But But even then, we will have people come to us and kind of, maybe uh, one of several flavors often and particularly during the pandemic it was people coming to us in in really severe burnout and just needing a that affirmation that it's okay to leave b some reassurance that it's not a, a suicide mission if one does leave and that c they're not alone in that endeavor um it's interesting how much I'll use the word shame seems to be around wanting to kind of leave this community. And and sometimes, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's from parents or from mentors, but often, you know, we've had people come to us and say, I'm afraid to follow you on social media so that, you know, if my friends see it or if my boss mm-hmm. sees it, right. There, there's definitely a fear um, and a bit of a, a guilt or a shame component, which I think starts to look at um, the cult-like nature of architects. But Jake <laughs> and I, we do refer to ourselves or we've had clients say it feels sometimes like career therapy. Full disclosure, we mm-hmm. are not therapists but you know we can we can relate to people who come to us in that moment of crisis so those are the the burnout folks um then we'll have people who come to us and just say and these are more kind of mid-level uh mid to senior level who will say look i um I'm looking at the next 15, 20 years of, of my life because of, you know, what's happening in the firm or what's going on with my partner or whatever. And I just, I, I need to make more money. I, I need to have more control over, you know, what life starts to look like as I enter, you know, middle age and then late stage career. And, you know, often they'll have friends or colleagues or, or partners that are in a different field and they're seeing them hit a stride in their career that doesn't seem possible in architecture, um, which goes back to that idea of like the the sort of just business failings of of architecture. Um, And we really try to help them unpack their, their skills and understand where else they may fit so as to better hit, you know, the aspects of, of their career that they need that architecture can't give them. Often we'll also have people come to us very early on in their career and say, I know I don't want to do this. I really enjoy school, but I know this is not for me. And how can I, you know, uh, tell my story or paint my picture of my work and what I've done so far to help me pivot without actually having to stop what I'm doing and go get a different degree or, or you know, mm. somehow start over. This question of starting over comes up quite a bit, actually, even as the the mid-level folks come to us. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that generally encapsulates uh, the types of conversations and, and where they're coming to us from. It very much has to do with you know, their state of mind and state of career as they enter the conversation. I'm really drawn to this idea that, you know, people who come to you see this as a type of therapy or that they want help reframing their work or asking for more money or, um, you know, even just, you know, how to feel better about the work that they're doing. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm trying to think how to ask this in a way that doesn't sound reductive or stupid. Um, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of asking it also just 
selfishly as somebody who makes a living to some extent having conversations with people, I'm wondering how you move beyond the conversation. What, what does success look like? How do you, how do you go beyond just, um, you know, talking about, you know, complaining about what is wrong to actually sort of making a change in someone's career? Um, what does that look like? Or how do you start to sort of navigate the, um, I'm just going to be cynical about everything, but here are some things that I can actually do to have the career or the life that I want, if that makes sense. Well, opening the door is just kind of the first step, right? And, mm -hmm. and certainly, you know, we find that um, most architects keep that door to other opportunities quite tightly locked. But mm -hmm. beyond, you know, the the work, the therapy, the conversations that it takes to allow someone to feel like they can can even see what's on the other side. There's a lot of tactical, a lot of strategic work that we do with clients. And that could be in the form of, you know, learning how to explore careers beyond what is kind of an insular profession. So applying to and acquiring architecture jobs is a skill certainly, but it's very unique to the profession. Mm -hmm. The way that we rely on a portfolio, the way that we mm -hmm. talk about our work and rather than focusing specifically on skills or kind of behavioral content of the work that we do, we really focus on the architectural significance and solutions. So there is a little bit of a proof point that yes, I can use uh, you know, a BIM right. software, you know, to a certain degree, but there is also very much a, you know, how do you think about the circulation of the building? What was the process like? You know, how do you iterate? How, you know, how long are you willing to mm -hmm. stay and struggle and, and resolve these kinds of very deep, creative, narrative questions? And when we, you know, are working with clients, we have to remind them that, you know, those are time management skills, project management skills, that the way that they execute on an idea from, from start to finish, you know, or even into signage and wayfinding and, you know, digital graphics and all of these things, that could be design strategy. You know, mm -hmm. the elements that are more temporary, those could be experiential design when they think, oh, I'm just playing around with a concept in, in AR or VR or learning Unity. That is a branch, you know, to a right. whole nother world. And the, you know, the elements that go beyond that then are also ones of networking, you know, and interacting with people and explaining what an architect is, you know, in, mm -hmm. in the context of other interviews or other, you know, conversations beyond the scope of just, you know, architect on architect. Well, and I would add too that I think just the structure of that the conversation is what a lot of our clients kind of need. Um, you know, again, back to how we're trained, there are very few exams in architecture that test design ability, if any, right? Mm. It is all about what do people think about what you're thinking about, right? Which is sometimes not even a fully formed thought, right? Desk crits, pinups, this language of, hey, this is what I'm grappling with. What do you think this idea of needing a dialogue and a community to support that is actually one of the things that I really appreciate about architecture and the way we were, I'll say, raised um, 
as an introvert, it was very new to realize that anything that was going on on your desk or in your head was then going to be, you know, workshopped in public to varying degrees. But I mean, the other side of that too, is that our clients come to us for this conversation, for this thinking out loud. And then we we tell all of them that this is something they can very much do on their own. What we offer is, is our, our counseling, having done it, you know, quite a bit um, with many other people. And now what it has grown into is really a community of of people that support this endeavor. And we're not the only community out there that does that. But um, I think one of the unintended consequences of, of what we've started and built is that there are many people now who, who feel kind of strongly about redefining that term and are looking for ways to, to, you know, just show that there's support and, and, you know, perhaps dare I say a cultural shift in getting architects involved in, in more conversations and potentially under different titles. Yeah, I want to come back to that idea of a cultural shift in a second. But I think that, like what you just articulated is why I'm so drawn to your work. It is that it is just like the making the space for that type of conversation. I think your book does that in a different way for people who, you know, maybe don't have the resources or the time or are comfortable like actually reaching out to you. Or, you know, it's a way of sort of making this this community, as, as you described it. And in the book, and I've heard you say this elsewhere, uh, about wanting people to see their careers as a design problem or as a design project also. And then earlier this year, you wrote sort of uh, um, the flip side to this a little bit in the Architects newspaper that uh, studios should think about running their business as a design problem. Can you talk to me about that? How can we think about our careers and our businesses or our studios as uh, as design problems? Or how how does it change how we operate in those spaces when we start to think of them that way? I think the response to the career element, treating your career like a design problem, is actually really freeing and exciting because... Mm-hmm. We all start, you know, design thinking, gosh, I would just, I would love a blank canvas. I would love a big piece of, you know, white paper and some markers, and I'd love to tackle this problem. And then you realize that there, there really is no such thing as a design problem that has right. no context. Right. There, there really is no opportunity in life to design something completely free of any constraints or any parameters. And you start to realize that actually you kind of crave the challenge, you crave the problems. And when you start to look at your career in that way, you begin to get these opportunities of like, okay, well, if I parameterize my search and I start to look at location and the things that I enjoy doing and the way that I want to spend mm-hmm. my time and you know who I want to be interacting with and, and where I maybe want to be in the future, you can dial that into a pretty clean design brief. And if we can sit down with somebody and look at that design brief, and of course you can do this for yourself, you can begin to design out a a pathway that actually fulfills pretty significant numbers of of Mm. those criteria. What I think people have difficulty with is they want to find a single company or a single 30-year career path that is going to hit all of those markers for them. And that's often very difficult. Some people luck into being lifers at a big company or even a small firm, or maybe they can start their own business and, and really fulfill all those needs. But for a lot of us, it's a combination. 
myself specifically, I, I mean, I work a nine to five at a very large company, Adidas, and I really enjoy what I do. But I would be lying if I said that it was fulfilling on all right. avenues of right. the of the spectrum. And that's completely fine because then as a part of my work, I also get to dive out into coaching and mentoring and working with individuals. And that bleeds over and blends into the passion that I have and the work that I do at Out of Architecture. And I've started to realize that, you know, your passion project doesn't necessarily have to carry all other elements of your life. And when we get clients that start to realize that it could be, well, maybe I'm going to you know, put some hours into this one endeavor and some hours into another, or maybe it's, hey, I'm going to spend two or three years and just really dive into this niche that I'm curious about and know that it's okay if I don't make it to principal UX researcher, you know, because that's the terminal position in the pathway right. that I've chosen. Maybe what's more important is the element of learning. And I will just end and say that, you know, one of the things that is pretty universally true about designers and architects is they absolutely crave newness. And I think we often, as, as a kind of younger generation, get stereotyped as, you know, impatient or, you know, unwilling to put the work in for long durations or things like that. And I would flip that around and say, I just want to be able to learn in the work that I'm doing. And I've been in the same position now for, for seven years here at Adidas and have loved it because I've had the opportunity to learn so many new things, so many new skills. And we find that often people who are looking to change are really just looking to kind of change the, the tone or the type of work that they're doing. Um, right. And so looking at your career like a design problem, you know, if you can start to parse down to, well, you know, am I really sick of my entire career or am I just looking for that next step? You know, that is a very different design brief. Um, right. And it's, it's kind of empowering once you realize it. Jake, what I love about what you just said is, you know, often when there's conversations around like, oh, like, you know, do your passion project, have your side project, you know, do this other thing. It sort of translates unintentionally to like hustle culture. Like you just always have to be working. You know, you have to have your demanding job and then you have to do the stuff that you want to do on the side. And by thinking about it as a design problem is you can now start to think about how those relate to each other, where you want to spend your time. So you don't then get that burnout. So you aren't just working all the time. So you are actually having a more holistic life that you want to have and live. And I think that often gets missed when we talk about things like side projects, side hustles, passion projects. It's very, very important also to recognize that, you know, when, when people come to Aaron and I and say, oh, well, you both, you know, you have your own businesses and you work with startups and you do, you know, all of these things. We, we rarely speak on the weekends. <laughs> you know, we, we really try to put up those boundaries and we've designed our business you know, to not grow at a speed that is going to take over our entire lives because we both value our personal time and our lives in that way. So it's very important that that become a criteria in that brief and that you really set up, you know, right. as many of those goals and boundaries to be reasonable and achievable because as soon as you stop 
hitting those progress markers, you're going to feel like this is, you know, oh, well, this isn't worth it. You know, this is just not, right. this isn't working out. It's impossible. Exactly. Um, and it's really, it's really not, you know, when, when built in a way that is, that is truly attainable. Aaron, you have, I mean, you you run your own uh, design agency um, called Matter. How do you think about that? I mean, you can speak about that specifically, but also generally, how do you think about that as a design project or as a design problem? How do you approach things differently? I mean, so for me, it kind of starts, and I think all of my answers today are going to start back going back to education. But um, one of the things I think we've mentioned before publicly, but it's certainly like, you know, on LinkedIn and whatnot. One of the things that Jake and I both did following our undergrad and our grad was, was go get business degrees. Um, Mm. And part of that was because there was just this hole and gap of knowledge that is really critical, I think, to how anyone, you know, exists in the kind of professional world, but, but very clearly true, I think, for, for architects, we have very little training in the lifeblood of what makes our work possible. Um, Mm. You know, we talk about architecture as an art, but it it is also a service and a service-based industry that results eventually in a product, right? Um, And we have no sense of training around how that actually comes to fruition. I think that's a, that's a massive failing on the educational side, just kind of full stop. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I think was really amazing and pivotal for both Jake and I was that we did that degree almost concurrently and just the shift of our conversations around it framing how we, how we knew and understood the the world around us, our profession, and also, you know, just again, as young professionals, how we were going to kind of go about our professional lives. You know, remember we were doing this while Jake was simultaneously moving across the country, um, you know, and moving in with, with his now wife. Right. And I was trying to kind of start my life in New York city as a, as a young professional. Right. So all of a sudden it was like someone, it's like when you first learn a word and then you start hearing it everywhere. So I do think that there's, a, you know, a, just a general educational failure of the fact that we have no idea when it comes to finance and money, unless you've been, you know, taught that your entire life growing up by, you know, people who are in your family or, or something like that. So that said, I think that really colored, it colors how we run out of architecture for sure, but it also colored then how I parameterized my search as a young professional and what I realized, and this is a quote kind of stolen from Mark Cuban, which is that, you know, you can look at, you know, whatever your title is going to be. I think for him, he was looking at like investment banker or whatever. And you can realize that as an architect, your terminal salary compensation and and general kind of life balance, um, you can see it. You can see it by looking at partners of of firms and and those who don't make it quite as far. Or you can decide that you're going to take on that as as a challenge. And that is actually limitless, right? If you Mm -hmm. think about not just what I'm going to make, but how I can kind of design my life. If I don't adhere to a title, it can be whatever I want it to be. And we obviously do that with, with our clients, but I think we also look at how to do that with businesses as well. So Jake and I advise a series of architecture and design tech startups, but also, yeah, I, I run my own design build practice, which very much looks like a somewhat traditional design build company in the sense that, you know, the the construction side makes most of the money. The design side, by taking over, you know, the construction side, one, we get to have a bit more fun with it. Two, I get to scratch an itch of I really like to build things. I think if Mm. I'm honest with myself, I went into architecture because I liked 
just making things. Um, and I thought that that was the professional way to do that. <laughs> and, you know, that was how I, I figured out I could have a, a studio that, that can support that endeavor. That said, though, I think if we were to think about architecture more broadly, we are operating at a place in time where the way firms got their start and sustained themselves, I don't think is really possible or sustainable anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you think about when the KPFs or the SOMs or the, you know, even something like Paycom Freed or even the smaller studios, when they got their start, if they were not, you know, self-supporting or, you know, subsidized in some way, you know, there were ways of competitions that led to to work. And this is also, you know, you see this in different countries, but in the US in particular, you can't just kind of hang out your your shingle and immediately get enough work to fund, you know, your 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 40 person firm. Matter of fact, the 40 person firm or the mid-sized firm is essentially dying. And you have many other professions and, and specialties coming in and taking a lot of the the contract size. You know, I just had to explain to my ProPrac students what a, a CM does or a, an owner's rep, right? So we as a profession need to reconceptualize what it means to have a business in architecture that is sustainable at all levels. I, I don't mean sustainability in this case from a climate change perspective, although of course that's important, but our people can't eat and that's a business problem. I've heard you talk before about how when you're talking with clients, when you're talking about people who are who are coming to you asking these questions about when it is when it is the right decision to leave the profession versus when you are trying to change the profession. You've talked about this as like working in architecture versus working for architecture. And that that dichotomy is very interesting to me. And the the leaving the profession, like I, I get that. I, I think the idea that these skills are applicable outside of what we narrowly define as architecture makes a lot of sense. The changing the profession seems really hard. <laughs> and then the way to sort of conceptualize that seems really hard because I I think there's the sort of the like cultural change of what we mean when we say architecture and design and the sort of fluidity of these boundaries. But then there's also just the sort of systemic issues of the profession, which we've sort of, you know, touched on throughout this conversation. We're having this conversation in the midst of a larger movement, uh, you know, looking for change in labor practices, multiple strikes in different industries, uh, you know, movements to start unions in architecture. How do you think about these issues on a systemic level? I realize you're talking to individuals about how they can make change. How do you see that laddering up to actually change how we work and what we work on? Yeah, I mean, well, one, it starts with Out of Architecture has given us a platform, which is great. And we've tried to use that platform at various points to call out certain things. And I think it started mm. really with calling out, um, Jake and I joke that out of architecture started simply because we like to complain to each other a lot. <laughs> so now we professionally complain about the profession. Um, I relate we to find that. It interesting. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I mean, look, we're problem solvers, which means we're problem seekers. Right. And that means you start where with pain points, but I mean, it's interesting because we were invited to an AIA panel uh, at the beginning of the summer and both Jake and I were like, really? Do they know how we feel about them? Um, because we've been out, outspoken. I think it starts there. Do I think that that's enough? No. Um, 
and I, I tell all of my students that architecture is not going to change from the top down. It's going to change from the bottom up. And that's why mm-hmm. I invest my time. And Jake does as well, frankly, because I bring him into many of our ProPrac sessions. But um, that's why we invest our time with people at the individual level. And I think that also comes from wanting to feel like we are making a difference. Because if you just look at the greater picture, sometimes it, it seems like nothing is is happening um, or not enough is happening. I think, you know, I give the people who are, you know, part of the um, architectural labor, uh, you know, drive as well as the architecture lobby and United Architecture Workers, I give them a lot of credit in the sense of often I imagine it feels like beating your head against a wall because you don't mm-hmm. see a ton of, of successes there. But I think the work they're doing is equally, you know, important. I think we like to see, or I especially like to see um, a little bit more success or traction happen at, a, at an earlier level, but that doesn't stop us also from just having uh, opinions and voicing those opinions. You mentioned the Architects news, newspaper article. Um, that was bubbling for a long time. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I do think it's, you know, it's worth maybe also um, giving listeners a perspective on how we've seen things change little by little over the last mm, five years. Yeah. And it's hard to describe the kind of holistic shift and tonal shift that has occurred in that time. But maybe anecdotally, the very first calls where Aaron and I were taking clients, um, we would schedule a phone call, you know, pre, pre-video calls being you know, extremely common. And we would get on a phone with people and, you know, we would have a brief conversation, but it would actually entail a pretty significant, you know, maybe justification on our side of, you know, why this is valid, you know, how mm-hmm. architects, you know, can do other things and that it's okay to want more and it's okay to do all of these things and and slowly kind of getting people to say mm, yeah you know well yes and and i guess you know even though i i said i was just curious at the start you know and and that i'm, I'm really happy in my firm I, uh, you know I'm, I'm actually a little bit more maybe displeased or disillusioned than i had let on initially and so on and now not only do we hear those stories in the public domain, but people come to us with a vigor and excitement that says, hey, you know, I have known about this as a possibility for the last three years. And not just from your brand. We have schools coming to us to ask us to support their career services department because 50% of incoming students say they don't want to go into architecture <laughs> and they're going into an architectural degree program. So. Right. We are now at a point where not only are we receiving invitations for out of architecture to speak at AIA events, which is fabulous, but we're also um, being approached by architecture firms who are interested in talent that is kind of more focused on non-traditional aspects of architecture or people who are Mm. wanting individuals that, quote unquote, don't want the standard firm experience. And that's a very dangerous, very dangerous game to play. I will tell you, you know, there are certainly firms who, you know, want, you know, individual thinkers and, and passion seekers and super driven and will work 120 hours a week for 30 hours of pay. And, you know, it's, it's uh, a steep, slippery slope. But on the other side of that, 
there are firms and companies like errands or like some of the different design agencies that we work with that really are looking for individuals who want to exercise their skills beyond just doing drawing sets and creating CDs and sending out, you know, and evaluating red lines and, and all of the elements of traditional architecture and who want to play around in these, you know, various kind of adjacencies to what, right. you know, at its core would be considered architecture. But what we in design school would have just felt, you know, was, was an average day. And that right. is really exciting and empowering because it started to be less and less about having to get people to unlock and open the door to these other avenues and more you know, once people are sprinting through that door, helping them to navigate the hundreds of thousands of hallways or doors like the matrix style, you know, infinite mm -hmm. passages yeah. Yeah. to all of these other professions and, and help to translate um, their experiences, which is really, really exciting. You know, one of the things that I've always been drawn to in architecture as someone who's not an architect so you know this is this is me looking from the outside it, and maybe this is also just ego of architects now that i think about it the elasticity of that term um you know uh you see it, it it is still uncommon but it is less uncommon like you just said to see architects working in various domains working across disciplines working at various scales from designing exhibitions to designing buildings to making books and you know films and and these sorts of things and the name of the name out of architecture you know means you know <laughs> you're helping people get out of architecture into something else but it's also the skills that you get out of architecture and as some, again, I don't mean to keep qualifying this as a graphic designer, graphic design historically has had a much more sort of limiting uh, domain. And in my experience, graphic designers are very hesitant to say, uh, I want to do this thing. Is that still graphic design? Like, you know, I, I have this with students all the time. They're like, oh, can I make a film for this project? Or, you know, if I do this, is that just art? Is that still graphic design? And I'm really interested in this sort of like, you know, how do we redefine this? How do we sort of encourage that interdisciplinarity that you're talking about, that, that it is okay to sort of take these skills and try them in different places? Do you have thoughts on how to do that? Whether like, whether you're in the profession already to start doing that. But even if like you're in school and I'm struck by that comment that schools are coming to you saying 50% of our students don't want to make buildings. Uh, how do we sort of build that in, uh, you know, from the beginning that these skills are applicable across a range of domains? Well, I think the, the reasoning behind why architects claim so much of design as architecture you know, it could be, um, it could be causal, you know, it also could be corollary. I think the more likely is that, you know, architects want to do other things and they're too afraid of leaving the term. So they <laughs> right. say, oh, well, that must be, <laughs> that right. has to be architecture, right? You right. know, designing a chair is definitely architecture, you know, because it of its relationship to the body and so on. Um, but Aaron might have a, a different opinion entirely. No, I mean, I think it starts with being transparent for those who are in the profession or adjacent professions talking about the fact that they're 
actually defining, let's say, what interdisciplinary means. I think a lot of firms and a lot of right, uh, right. people out there will say they are, but it's one of those kind of buzzwords. The other thing too, though, is that, you know, we graduate as a, a series of, you know, North American schools, uh, far too many architects than the need is in the, hmm. in, in, you know, the immediate term and in the near term. And, frankly, probably in the distant future. But again, we can't produce or we can't predict that far out. So I think we need to be honest about the fact that one, just because you're getting a degree or you've started a career in architecture does not mean that you have to be a capital A architect. I would also advocate for expanding that term quite a bit. Um, I I think it's frankly too exclusive and exclusionary at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also the AIA is supposed to be doing this at least in, in, in North America. But if you ask a lay person or someone who is not trained as a designer or someone who does not know an architect, what an architect does, they say blueprints. Mm -hmm. I have not seen a blueprint in my lifetime. Um, (laughs) And, and second, like, I think people will say blueprints and okay. All right. Now we know what they do, but we, they really don't. Right. Right, So I think an educational, an education of what an architect does in society would be really helpful aside from the like rom-com where the, the guy is the, <laughs> the architect or I'm told someone's an architect on how I met your mother. I think we need to really let people know in the, in greater society, but certainly in the business realm, what an architect does. Um, and I think color that in a light of the fact that we are simply problem solvers that have an incredible knowledge of, of the built environment and how humans relate to one another. And when you describe yourself that way, you then now fit into many roles. Um, right. So right. I do think it's it's about kind of uh, for those who are there, putting your money where your mouth is. And also I think schools becoming less um, uh, elitist around what it means to earn that, that degree. And then licensing boards becoming less um, difficult and exclusionary. Let's talk briefly, though, about, you know, why schools are that way. I mean, I feel like for a long time, schools were so driven to have people going to the top firms, right. because that is what incoming students wanted. They wanted to go to these, you know, incredible star architecture firms, and they wanted to have the experience of being an apprentice to you know, Frank Lloyd Wright and to, you know, Mies van der Rohe and all of these other, you know, names that have kind of, you know, now are, are long dead or long, you know, no longer the, uh, the, the firms that people are trying to, um, right. you know, find themselves at. But I think what schools are realizing is that, you know, there was this massive, massive tech boom and people are very interested in, how to apply architectural and design skills into mm. companies like, well, none of them are named, you know, their actual names anymore. There's no more Facebook and there's no right. more, you know, right. Twitter and so on, but yeah. um, they still exist in a different form. And, <laughs> you know, students are really, really looking for ways to explore architecture and design through this new technological lens and through these other industries and even into, you know, worlds of advertising and, you know, elements that architects traditionally didn't dabble in. Right. And as schools start to gain, you know, an understanding of what incoming students want, 
their appetites actually are shifting quite dramatically. And it can be seen also in the professors that are employed, right? Very much these non-traditional professors. In fact, two of the GSD professors, Timon and Teron Evans, who are absolutely fabulous educators, are, I believe, uh, one is the head of design at Amazon Music, and the other, Mm. if I'm not mistaken... Um, is the head of design at General Mills. And, you know, to to what degree, um, you right. know, please forgive me for my level of accuracy, but I use that to say that, you know, these are not the Tom Mains who are right. absolute right. pricks on review boards, by the way. Right. They are really, you know, industry professionals who are coming in with a totally new way of looking at architecture and design and also providing a very visible lens to students that you can take a design degree, a degree, excuse me, you can take a design degree and go out into the world and work for a very large company and have a huge impact and bring home a ton of money and also still be a part of this very niche group, this very, you know, small cult of designers who get to call themselves you know, an architect. Well, and I think it's also important to know that you don't have to become Tom Main before you do that, right? I think there's this idea that like, okay, you know, Rem Koolhaas gets to make films and write books and whatnot because he became Rem Koolhaas. And no, I think that that's, you know, total bullshit. And I think celebrating that people have other creative outlets and endeavors and multifacets to who they are both personally and professionally, I think would be, would do everyone a huge, huge service. What's next for you? What's next for Out of Architecture? Where where do you see this going? Um, you know, what what sort of new things are you thinking about? Jake and I have a weekly uh, or biweekly strategy meeting where we try to only talk about things, you know, kind of three and, and five years in, in the future, um, which is really hard because there are plenty of, of fires to put out. But I think our discussion now has really started to, A, look at our consulting business is 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 great, um, but there's a, a sort of terminal um, velocity to which we can help people at that level. Um, mm-hmm. One, you know, it's it's a paid service for the most part, although we do take on pro bono cases as well. But it, it's linked to everyone's time. We have you know five other advisors who are are excellent and part of the team, but you know, there's a sort of capacity to which we can help at that level. So a lot of what we're looking at now is how can we scale the work and the impact of what we're doing um, without having to have an army of, of advisors and also without, um, you know, excluding people who can maybe can't afford that work. And then I think also how can we participate in some of the greater conversations that are happening around this, which means both mm-hmm. mine and Jake's time can't immediately be consistently taxed with, um, you know, with advising. So how do we support that, that side of the business? And then also, you know, every conversation we have looks at what do we want our, our holistic lives to look like in the future as well? And what role does out of architecture play in that? Um, We never thought this would become a a sort of full-time thing for us. And we've done a pretty good job designing it so that we can still have our other endeavors and and our personal lives. Um, So we try to be really cognizant of, of that as well. I would only add here that in the realm of what's next for out of architecture, you know, we have accomplished a a pretty large number of, uh, you know, the big markers that we set out to do. We published the book. Mm. We've managed to keep the business around and paying for itself for about five years. But, um, 
we have always enjoyed kind of sharing these stories. And as Aaron mentioned, you know, one of the big things that we're trying to do is to create space for others Mm -hmm. to bring their narratives in, but also to help us kind of tone set and, and change what is perceived as, you know, fair in architecture. You mentioned a lot of unionization and, you know, we've been through a huge Me Too movement in architecture Mm -hmm. over Mm -hmm. the last decade and so on. And and it has really had a major impact on the way that the profession looks in itself. We have a, a podcast called Tangents Out of Architecture that focuses primarily on the narratives of people who have transitioned from architecture and other design Uh, professions out to the rest of the world. Uh, And that is a very positive podcast um, and one that does a really good job of helping people to see what those possibilities are. What I think we would like to do um, is we are actually putting together a second podcast called Mm -hmm. Red Lines. And, uh, you know, in I think in name, you know, it is both meant to evoke kind of the, you know, red lines that architects address as a part of their work, but also, you know, these sort of cautionary tales. And what we're hoping Mm. to do is to create a space for some of the more underground stories, some of the more, you know, lesser desirable trends, workplace issues, uh, you know, occurrences that I think are very isolating to designers when they're, uh, you know, first starting in their profession, or even when they're years and years down the line and trying to, you know, understand where things went awry. We're hoping to give a voice to uh, many of these stories, you know, whether they deal with, you know, sexual abuse and harassment, whether they deal with, you know, workplace, you know, whether it's you know, drama or, you know, real issues of, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm struggling here to, um, to say some of these things, but, you know, abuse and taking advantage of talent and labor and Mm -hmm. on all of these areas, we have heard thousands of those stories. And, and, you know, unfortunately, not everyone has that, I would call it a privilege to sit on that end and, and receive that information. But many people, are in need of hearing those narratives and and of understanding that their experiences, while unique, you know, shouldn't isolate them from right. the rest of of the working profession, and that and that they are unfortunately common, but also that there are different ways of handling them, or even just people to speak to um, that can support them in dealing with those feelings and scenarios and so on. So. We have that as a project coming out here um, in the not too distant future. And I'm really hopeful that this will kind of be, uh, fill a missing void in the conversation. My last question, I'm, that is the, I end every episode with this question. I'm curious what you're both reading right now. I do this weird thing where I, I read and listen to audiobooks at the same time. <laughs> and I, I do a lot of driving and a lot of commuting. So audiobooks are great. And certain uh, certain things I like to listen to as opposed to read, particularly really dense subjects. So I'm listening to uh, Poverty by America, which has been a really interesting lens into what we define um class, poverty, uh, its implications in the, the built environment and also just sort of the so- social, stru- sorry, social structures around what it means to be 
poor. Um, and what's interesting there is that it, like he, he does this really interesting talk about like being poor is a, is a, a failure, but being in poverty is something that is um, pitied. Like he, he talks about essentially the wording right. we use around, around poverty, which is a little bit like the difference between eating um, cow versus beef. The right. fact that we've changed the, the word to make right. it sound a little bit more palatable, um, which kind of, it just dovetails into kind of, what I research and, and what matter kind of works on. So that is what I'm um, listening to. I am reading uh, Einstein in Love, which is about physics and Einstein and his personal life at the same time as as his sort of, you know, breakthrough, um, you know, ideas and thoughts around around physics. So what I read and what I listen to are very different things. <laughs> uh, Jake, what about you? Oh, man, we should encourage people to read... The out of architecture book and buy the audiobook. I mean, that's that's a Ooh. that's a no brainer. That's double marketing. Yeah. Yeah. I um, did read and listen to that one <laughs> many times. <laughs> oh, many times. Um, gosh, my books are going to seem very silly in comparison to Aaron's, but hopefully they will uh, provide some joy to someone else's life. So, I I do also um, listen to usually a different audiobook than. Uh, what I'm reading. I just finished a very good audiobook called Crib Sheet. Um, my mm -hmm. wife, Rachel, and I are expecting our first. So I am oh, avidly consuming, thank you so much, avidly consuming parenting material. And that yeah. is through the lens of uh, an economist, um, Emily Oster, I believe, who mm -hmm. writes just a fabulous, like, sort of scientific style, almost um, kind of Mary Roach narrative-based structure where she kind of provides anecdotal evidence for, um, you know, new parents and so on to make decisions off of, which is extremely helpful for those of us who didn't even know that it was a choice where your baby was going to sleep and so on. So I'm learning all kinds of stuff, but I am also reading... Um, th this probably shouldn't be embarrassing, but it is, is quite silly. Um, I'm reading What If, uh, actually the second edition of What If by Randall Monroe, who is also the author of the online comic uh, XKCD. Oh, yeah. And What If is uh, a series of scientific answers to absurd hypothetical questions. And I have to tell you that as a designer, not only are the comics that are drawn in this book just absolutely hilarious and phenomenal but it is a very mind expanding experience to read a question like what would the world be like if the universe were filled with soup out to jupiter and then to hear a very <laughs> physics-based logical series of responses that i mean inevitably is extraordinarily hilarious about, you know, well, it would actually be denser than a black hole. And if you were in the soup, but between planets, you wouldn't really feel it, but you'd be moving about 20 kilometers a second towards the wow. center of the black hole. And wow. if you were, you know, it's, it, it's really funny. And I, I read the first one. Um, I think I picked it up in uh, Cambridge, while I was studying at Harvard and thought like this would be an extraordinarily like educational <laughs> like, series of answers <laughs> and realized just like 
how dumb all of us smart people are and how stupid <laughs> and silly we are. And it was a really enjoyable read. So both the first What If and What If 2, I cannot <laughs> recommend enough, um, especially for people who like learning because it's well outside of my area of expertise. There's a lot of astrophysics in it. There's a lot of just normal physics and um, geology and, and different areas of science that are very foreign to me. So I, I assume yeah. actually that most of the answers are, you know, they, they might as well be a hundred percent scientific. I would have no way of telling, um, which <laughs> yeah, makes right. really, really fun and enjoyable uh, read. I don't think those are silly at all. Actually. I think those, I think all three of those books are, are great books. You already did a great job promoting your book out of architecture, <laughs> the value of architects beyond traditional practice. But I do, you know, I want to say this, is, it was a book that I f really, you know, found valuable. And I think it's valuable to people outside of architecture and just in design. Generally, I think the work that you're doing is, is really important and needed. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me for the show. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Jared. No, thank you. Yeah, this is likewise. I think, you know, the conversations you're having are, are equally, equally important. And we always appreciate um, having a fun conversation about the, the work that we do and what those bounds can be. And thanks for giving us the, uh, the opportunity. And that was my conversation with Out of Architecture's Aaron Pellegrino and Jake Rudin. It was recorded on September 18th, 2023. Our theme music is by Jeremiah Chu, whose new album, In Electric Time, is out now. The show is and always will be free, thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you like what we're doing here, I hope you consider supporting us and get some bonus content each month. You can follow us across social media at Surface Podcast. You can listen to all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.